The following is brought to you by Braided Media. Hello, and welcome to the Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that inspires you, because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. My guest today is Ife Elizabeth Shabby. She's a prolific consumer brand builder, CEO, and biochemist focused on creating products in the beauty space. She's the founder of amazing brands including Lula Cosmetics, Ceramize Skin, and HB Labs, And she's been acknowledged for her innovations and inclusivity in Forbes magazine, Elle, The Kit, Brides, Fashion, and other publications. Her brands focus on inclusivity, functionality, accessibility, quality, and sustainability. And she's made it a habit of finding literally the white spaces in this sector and occupying them. It's good to have you on the show, Liz. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. Um, Just wanted to get right down to it and get started Tell us about you. Where did life start for you? What was your upbringing like? Um, And how did you find yourself uh, where you are right now? Thank you for having me, Aziz. I'm really excited to be here. Um, Life started for me in Lagos, Nigeria. I grew up in a family of six, five brothers and just me. Um, I quickly learned how to, you know, kind of put myself in that space. I make sure that I'm heard because it's very intimidating to grow up with five boys. A lot of drama, our house. And then we had uh, multiple cousins that would live with us. So I grew up in a house of, let's say, 25 men and just me and my mom. Um, So quickly I had to learn how to, you know, really make myself seen, even in a very rowdy space. Um, My parents were both business people. My dad worked um, a corporate career for over 30 years in upstream oil and gas and had a successful downstream business as well. My mom also had two businesses. She owned a print house where she printed promotional materials for elections, kind of like the print house here in Toronto. Right. And she also had a fashion house on the side. So growing up for me, I was, it was all about just, you know, finding the balance. My parents were so invested in formal and informal education. If we took the break during secondary school, it was always to, you know, have a lesson teacher, to um, maybe work in their office. So it was a lot of just, you know, figuring yourself out and being useful. They had a really big, you know, thing for usefulness. <laughs> usefulness. Up. Interesting. Yes, you have to make yourself useful. Nice, nice. So so you, 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 you were there for, you know, 14 years of your life and then ultimately moved to, to Canada. Uh, what was that transition like for you and why, why Canada to begin with? To be honest, Canada wasn't my first choice. <laughs> Um, like most Nigerian kids, my parents wanted me to go to the UK because it was closer to home and because they'll be able to, in quote, monitor me better. Um, I opted for to actually go to school in the States, but I didn't get into my university of choice um, because I was too young. 
So an aunt of mine suggested that I come to Canada, do a pre-uni course um, at a private um, college, Columbia International College, and then go to uni from there. So that was how I found myself in Canada. Cool, cool. And and how did how did you feel during that transition? I mean, like you, this is first time living in a completely different country. Uh, what was the adjustment like? <laughs> I feel like it was really different, but not because I was separated from my parents. Um, my parents were super busy people, so I was already used to being in boarding school, being by myself. I developed a really strong sense of self prior to leaving the country. Even though I was young, I feel like my parents were definitely comfortable and confident to send me here because they knew that I had a sense of self. Um, of course, I found some things different. You know, coming from, I went to VF, Vivian Fowler Memorial College in Lagos, which was an all-girls school, very big on like being yourself, doing everything that the guys can, can do to come into a school where I sounded different, I looked different. You know, it was really hard to adapt, but I guess, you know, it went well. Nice, nice. And, and so ultimately, you, you graduated from, from uh, uh, CIC mm-hmm. um, and decided, okay, of course, next step, logical step, university. Uh, what made you choose biochemistry? Actually, did you start with wanting to go into biochemistry or was there something else that you, that you were lined up to do? I always wanted to make my parents proud. Uh, my dad is really big on sciences. He's a science guy. And he had this belief where, like, if you're a smart kid, then the sciences were for you. If you're lukewarm, then maybe you end up in arts. If you're just all right, maybe you end up in commercial. So I naturally just gravitated towards science because I would spend a lot of time at my dad's place working in DPR at the time. You know, I spent a lot of time at, with my cousins who were, you know, bio t- they were testing basically health hospitals in Lagos and things like that. So I already had a natural interest in science. And initially, I actually set out to be a pharmacist. So I knew that to enter pharmacy, uh, pharmacy school here in Toronto, I would have to do a science undergrad first and then, you know, sign up for pharmacy school. So I chose my pure science and I chose what I was good at, which is chemistry. Nice. And, and you combined both uh, to end up with, with, a, with a Bachelor of Science in Biology and Chemistry yes. um, uh, out of, uh, I believe it was Trent University, Trent right? Trent University. Excellent. And what, what was your experience like in university? Because, you know, uh, again, this is another change. Like you, you, you were in CIC for just a, a short while and then moving to another institution, uh, again, in a different city as well. Like what was that whole experience for you? Peterborough is a very white city. <laughs> That's the first thing to, to note. Um, I just, I found, I found the transition like pretty smooth because I always had my mind towards the end goal. I start things, you know, with the mindset of how it's going to end versus how the journey itself is going, you know, in terms of being in um, Trent U. Um, Trent was fine because I wound up being like, you know, VP for the student union before graduating. I made sure that I made good friends I made sure that I leveraged myself. But what was most important to me was knowing the value of money as early as I did. I really wanted to you know, maximize and optimize my stay there. So I made sure that I, I was an overkill. I overloaded those courses. I did summer school if I had to. I took an internship job if I had to. So I think I, make the, I made the most out of my uni life. Like, I have no regrets. Mm. And, of course, I was also a party girl on the side. I was going to ask, like, you, did, no you, <laughs> did you have a social life with all of this, this going yes, on? I had a social life, a really good social life. Like, Peterborough is really, a really quiet slash, you know, dead city, so to speak. And the university made up for most of the social activities that happened there. So I made a lot of friends, you know, from Peterborough down to Kingston, and we will just throw parties like once every month. Mm. Like science kids were really, you know, 
fixed and boring, so to speak, but then were also super fun. So I tried to make time just to enjoy my university experience. I was very keen on it and I was very intentional about having a good time in uni. Nice. Nice. So, so you, because of all of this, you were able to finish university much faster than most people, yes. right? Particularly in the science program, you, like, you finished that in about three and a half years, yes. which is pretty quick for, for a lot of people uh, doing heavy sciences. What did you decide to do next after that? So I finished uh, biochem, and the first thing that came to mind was, okay, it's time to get into pharmacy school, time to take the exams, you know, time to apply to uni. But during my uni life, I, t- I took an um, internship, right, at a cosmetic company in Toronto. So once every week, I would go there and work as a compounder, and I started to develop, like, a real love for cosmetics. At that time in my second year, I'd already launched Lula Cosmetics, and I was already selling beauty products on campus, and I will do what I call the campus, uh, campus tour. I will go from like campus to campus, selling products, um, taking their library tables and you know, selling my products. So I already knew that I had that interest in cosmetics. Sorry, let, let, let's go back for a yes. little bit. So, so wait, you said you started Lula Cosmetics in university yes. during your undergrad. Yes. How did that happen? Like, what, what, how did you get into that, you know, industry and what made you decide okay I want to start a beauty company in in undergrad my mom is really big on beauty like she's the kind of auntie that you call around 6 p.m or 6 a.m in the morning and she has a full face done oh wow you know only if she wants you to see her bare so I just always loved beauty I was always curious as to how products were made and I showed a genuine interest in beauty because I started selling Avon in my first year for side monies you know if you want to live lavish asides of your you know pocket money you would have like a side gig. I had a side gig at least. Mm. Started selling Avon, noticed that people took well to the products. People liked when I showed them how to use the makeup and I would host tea parties in my friend's house. So second year, like I was keen on it. I wanted products that were inclusive. At that time, there were not many brands that were inclusive. Inclusivity wasn't as cool or, you know, profitable as it is today. It was more, you know, you want, if you want vegan cruelty free products, then you would have like the three to four boring shades. Mm. So I started making my own lipsticks every time. And, and sorry, when you talk about inclusivity, right, we're talking about, you know, products made for, for, for dark-skinned yes. individuals, for black people, people and, and people of color in general. Yes. Okay, yeah. So I started making my own lipsticks. I ordered some tubes from China. I would put them in the tubes, and my friends were buying them. You know, my party friends were buying them. Their moms were buying the products, so I knew that there was something there. But I just I wanted the products to be just more than, like, the regular everyday beauty. And I started to think of functionality. I like to look beat. I really like to look nice when I go to class every day. I had older friends that had kids, and I saw that they wanted to make some time for self-care, but they didn't have two to three hours to do a full face of makeup. Nor did they have, like, a lot of money to just acquire a, you know, super large kit. So I started to make products that will have dual function. I started with, like, a cream blush that was also a lipstick, right? And I saw that people took well to it, and that was when I started the hybrid model, right, for my products. So I started then, and I just kept on and kept on. And something else that occurred to me in that process was, if you want to do the business of beauty, it's not just about how the products are made, right? You have to think of the best ways to optimize your cost of production as a black woman that will have zero funding (laughs) to Mm. none. So I started learning, how do I make these products? How do I get the cheapest raw materials? And I figured that the best way to learn as a student at the time was to take an internship at a private label and cosmetics manufacturing company in Toronto. So that was how I started, and I just kept on. Nice, nice. And during that internship, you you you, lear- you probably obviously learned you know better things around formulation, around yes. packaging, around 
branding and selling. And, and so with all of that, um, you decided to do an MBA in Europe at a very young age. I think, I mean, how young were you when you got into to the MBA program in Europe? So I got into the program at the age of 19. I oh, didn't wow. actually leave to do the program until I was 20. And then I spent the whole year there and finished a little over 21. Wow. So. Wow. Man, that, that's, that's incredibly young. So what was, what was the European MBA experience like? Um, and, and which country were you in uh, for the program? So I chose Monaco because of lifestyle, because it's also the hub of consumerism. It's where you see people, you know, spend so much on things, like the things validate them. So, and I also like the fact that, you know, the MBA had, I could have gone anywhere while doing my MBA. Mm-hmm. What I, I, why I chose Europe over a Canadian MBA at the time was I just wanted a more hands-on experience. I didn't want to have to start over doing the theory for a year and then going to, you know, to the interesting stuff like the case studies, you know, and all those kind of things. So I just chose to go to Europe because immediately we hit the ground running. We started, you know, doing case studies for companies. We started reviewing old case studies. It was just a lot of exposure. Like I had so many, I think I was the youngest in my class for sure. Mm-hmm. If I looked at my MBA class, I would say averagely, people had an average of 20 years plus of experience. Wow. And I think that was my age at the time. So um, it was really good. I got babied through my, I loved being babied in my class, <laughs> you know. And it was just really good. It was very hands-on for me. It was a wonderful experience. Nice. Very nice. And, and of course, you know, as you mentioned, being in Monaco, focused on, on that consumer space, largely, again, driven by the entrepreneurial venture that you're in. Um, I can imagine that there was a lot of stuff that you learned that you were able to literally apply immediately to your own business. Were you, were you still running Lula while you were, you were doing your MBA? Yes, I was. And what I did was because at first I had a little warehouse I took a, I call it a little warehouse because then I had like a two bedroom apartment in Scarborough and it was a little over a thousand square feet and I dedicated one whole room to like shipping stuff. And I also partnered with a 3PL company who will fulfill the others on days where we're overwhelmed. So when I moved to Monaco, what I did was I handed off the business to the 3PL company, third party logistics, and they plugged into the back of our site and they will just go and directly fulfill orders to the customer. So it gave me time to just do the core things like my marketing, you know, keeping customer relations warm and thinking of the next thing in terms of my brand. Um, Moving to Monaco, like what actually really drove me to go and do that MBA was I realized that I had to understand every phase of the business to be able to maximize my growth. Mm. You know, I knew that if I, to be a young person, you you kind of have to come with street cred. You know, as a young person, you have to overdo yourself. You have to make sure your voice is the loudest in the room without being the loudest in the room. So I knew that I had to understand everything so that when I'm talking to contract suppliers, I'm talking to retail buyers, I'm using the terms that resonate with them. I'm talking about the things that matter to them. And I'm also reducing my cost of production to the barest minimum because I could do practically everything for my business by myself. Right, right. That's fantastic. And I guess... Were there any challenges that you experienced while in the program, you know, from a learning perspective and, you know, from a validation perspective? I mean, you're the youngest in this program. You're a black individual in in this program. You know, were there any frustrating parts of that experience? Finance was frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Of course, there were many, um, you know, hard parts of the program. First of all, the validation piece, you know, constantly trying to, you know, I guess I wouldn't say earn the respect of my, of my classmates, so to speak, but they couldn't understand why I was there. You mm. know, I got some, compl- some, pe- some people actually called me to say, like, 
you know, Liz, we feel like you should enjoy your life more. You shouldn't be here doing an MBA at this age. You should probably be relaxed somewhere, you know, doing an undergrad. I finished my undergrad, so I don't need to be doing an undergrad somewhere. Um, and also, smack in between my MBA program, I was involved in a car accident. So at some point, like two months towards the end, I wound up doing most of my final exams on a hospital bed. And I was so keen on graduating because if I missed a, a course or anything that year, I would have to come back the next year to mm. join the next class and graduate. So that was what my experience was um, in terms of my MBA. But overall, it was great. How did, how did, you, um, how did you deal with the, what I would consider the, the mental impact of having um, an accident in a foreign land and you know, it's almost derailing your, your education plans? Wow. Um, thinking back at it, it was, it was really, it was a jarring experience first because who moves to Monaco, who moves to do an MBA program for progression and gets an accident, right? Obviously, I was shocked. That was my first response to things. But it was also like a reminder for me that your life is not promised. Tomorrow is not promised. So you have to optimize your today, right? It was like anything could have happened. I could have died, you know, when that accident happened, and that would have been the end of me, and I'd have had no legacy whatsoever. So having that accident just really jarred me up mentally. I would say it gingered me, the key word. Yeah. <laughs> it inspired me. It made me want, want to do more and get more out of my time. So that was the impact that the accident had on me. It just made me want more. Okay. And, and so after, I mean, you graduate successfully from this program, and, um, you know, you moved back to Toronto um, what did you decide to do then? Again, you, you, you still, you've got this, you know, the credentials, you've, you've got the, the undergrad in biochemistry, you understand formulation in, in cosmetics, you've got the business background now to, to actually push this forward. What happens when you come back? So when I was in Monaco, I actually had an internship as I was doing my MBA. I was working at a family investment fund where they basically just manage wealth and make sure that everything is growing and being able to like pass the wealth down to the next generation. So already I had a strong interest in finance, and I knew that if I wanted to come back to Toronto, I wanted to make sure that I was able to do two things, grow my business and also leverage what I had just learned. So I wanted to get a job in finance in some, you know, some capacity, and I also wanted to run my business. That was my game plan when I moved back. Mm. And then what happened? Like, what, what did you end up getting into first? So I, I just, I kept on, I kept on applying to jobs. It was really hard to find a job when I first moved back because um, most times Canadians are keen on having like full on Canadian degrees. Um, I started talking to my friends about it and then I spoke to you, Aziz. Yes, <laughs> I spoke to Aziz and he kind of, you know, put in a good word with, uh, for me with a recruiter and then I met with them and then I got hired as a rotational branch manager at TD, managing about four to five branches in rotation and it was kind of a new role for them as well. Like, I think they were testing out the waters to see how young blood fits into their, you know, their setup at the time. Nice, nice. And, and of course, you know, you went through that experience. Uh, you know, when did you realize that you needed to do more than just banking? I think I, I realized when I started having to explain myself a lot. You know, banking is a very um, by-the-book um, institution. People... They, like, they have an expectation of what you should be. They have an expectation of what you should look like, what you should sound like, what kind of education you should have, what type of experience you should have. And I just didn't fit the mold. Mm. 
you know, I took all the advice. I spoke to people that work banking actively. I spoke to friends to try and really just navigate the experience. But it just wasn't for me. Like on many days going to work, you know, a serious meeting, like I prepped for a serious meeting ready to go and all my um, superior wanted to talk about was the change of my hair color today. (laughs) You know, Liz, you look tired today. You have no makeup on. And it just clicked. I'm like, you know, this is not what I like. I do enjoy growing businesses. I enjoy meeting people. But this is not the capacity that I want to apply myself. I wanted to find something that would just allow me to manifest my core love for science and still leverage the business side of me. And and all of this, you're you know, through all of this, you're still running your beauty company, um, you know, growing it little by little. Um, and then you decide, okay, I think it's time to just focus on this full time. What was what was what what happened when you made that decision that I'm going to just go full time entrepreneurship? A lot happened. <laughs> a lot happened. First, I had to make peace with the fact that it wasn't going to be a smooth road. I had to make peace with the fact that it might not end well, right? I also had to make peace with the fact that people might not see me how I want to be seen, mm. right? It was a really hard journey just transitioning full time. You know, owning a business means you have to be selfless, means you're ready to give it everything. You're ready to do, you know, the maximum to succeed at it, right? So the transition was hard for me. I made a game plan. I said, okay, I have this much money in the bank. The business has brought me this much money. And these are all the things that I can do to really get exposure for my brand. So I came up with the idea of, you know, going on the road pretty much with my brand because we are a travel-inspired functional brand. I started having pop-ups in different locations to see where my customers are, what they like, you know, what makes them connect to the brand, just to kind of understand them better. But of course, I didn't have the purse for it. My pocket was running dry on one side. I had to hire people and pay them and not pay myself while this was going on. But I was just ready. You know, I just made up my mind that, hey, what's the worst that can happen? At least you know that you you tried. Right. So I continued like that. And then we started to gain some momentum. We got featured in a couple of magazines. We got a few collabs going and we started to see our sales rise. So then I, I had affirmation that, okay, you're doing the right thing. But I think for most people, you just need to make peace with the fact that if you're going into starting a business, you're not going to get encouragement. Mm. All your affirmation should come from within because it's going to be all you need. I, I, I like what you say about that, right? Because um, a lot of times we seek that external validation that we're you know, from other people that were on the right path versus having that conviction within ourselves that this is what I want to do and I'm going to stick with it until it pans out. And and you, you talked about, you know, even the challenge of, let's say, financing, right? Um, and, um, uh, and, and, you know, as a young entrepreneur, right, there are issues, you, know, you know, you're not always able to convince most people that, hey, this business makes sense. You know, I need X amount of dollars to, to, to function or I need uh, this for my marketing. How are you able to navigate uh, fundraising or, or financing your, the growth of your business, uh, particularly as a young black African woman uh, in a space that is traditionally white? I think it's one thing to be a woman. That's one problem for financing. It's one thing to be black. That's a second problem. It's a third thing to be young. That's a major problem. Um, It was really hard. I didn't get any external financing for my business. Um, My time working in Monaco and working with that family fund showed me what investors were looking for in terms of a brand. So I knew how to organize myself if I wanted to get funding. I spoke to some investors. 
most of them wouldn't take me serious because I was young, black, and female. And those that took me serious were really coming with a knife. They just wanted, you know, 40% of my business for maybe 500000 at the time. And it didn't make any sense for me. But I think it's important to, you know, just try to bootstrap as much as you can. That's what I did. I would, every money, that every penny that we made from the business was put back into the business. I learned every part of my business so I wouldn't have to pay for stuff. Right. Right. To, to fund one formula, if you were starting a formula without going with the private label or white label, you know, to make just a regular maybe lipstick formula with the company can cost you anywhere between $5,000 to $10,000 for one formula. To make it, most of them have like a 12,000 pieces per SKU minimum, which means if you were to start a brand that is competitive on a global scale, and you were bootstrapping, you would need like a minimum of at least 250K to, to really compete. And if you don't have 250K, then you have to do most of the work yourself. So for me, how I navigated that was just knowing that I was enough, doing most of the work, and again, making um, strategic um, partnerships with people. I understood very quickly, you know, creating shared value for other people. So which means what's in it for me and what's in it for them. And that's what drove the balance. So I just kept on. I would max out personal credit cards sometimes mm. just to make a product out there. I would, I just, be, I took a bet. I, I really bet on myself and I'm just like, what's the worst that can happen? Maybe right. you end up going back to your village, but <laughs> I was just ready for it. So I think the key is just bootstrap your way, continue to see value in yourself until someone else can't deny the value in you. Right. And, 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 and this of course has worked out for you. You've, you've, yes. you've been, you grew uh, Lula Cosmetics significantly, you know, year over year, month over month sales increases. Um, and then, you know, some of the, the brand features start happening, you know, certain magazines, some high profile Finally. ones, you know, started recognizing this. And so what, what happened? And, and I think, and we'll probably talk about, you know, Forbes, right? Because yes. I mean, some, sometimes the, the Forbes is one of those areas where people want to get in. It's the ultimate form of validation. How did that come about? Like, how did it, how did that recognition start to come through and then what happened when you got into the you know the l magazines the the the, the forbes magazines uh well let's talk about even those stories like how that came about okay. so i got on the road i continued with lula cosmetics we continued our road tour i did houston new york and then i decided that it's time to do toronto again i'd done toronto the first time for two days and i wanted like a more you know a big retail experience that will let me know if it's time to have a permanent store at home or not right so one of those nights in store, like we would have like all these beauty parties and trying to woo customers into, you know, understanding the value that our brand brings and all these things. And one night a lady just wandered into our store and it was just one of, we were having like a party and there was alcohol. Okay, guys, I was on the second level, you know, the second <laughs> level. Yeah. So I was just there chatting with this customer. She was so, like, glam. She just looked so beautiful. I, like, once she walked in, I said, okay, I have to talk to this lady. I don't care if she buys anything, but we're definitely going to talk. Like, she was just my kind of energy. So I spoke to her for, like, one hour. We talked about everything, trips, boys, business. And at the end of our conversation, she just dropped. By the way, Liz, I'm a Forbes editor. I froze. I was like, why didn't you lead with that? Like, why would you tell me at the end of this one hour random conversation that you're a Forbes editor. So we talked and she just said, you know, if you ever launch a product, talk to me here. She gave me her email. We exchanged contact and that was it. For another year, I didn't hear from her. We were just talking on Instagram back and forth. Um, 
around that time, I was already working on my new brand now, which is Ceramize Skin, right? And Ceramize is a brand that's supposed to bridge the gap between prescription skincare and day-to-day skincare. So we want to give you what's the most, you know, efficient and, you know, the most active when it comes to beauty. So I started working on that and, you know, I just kept on. And unfortunately for me, the products were ready and it was March last year, the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. So I already said, you know what, I'm in trouble. How am I going to sell over 20K pieces of product in a pandemic? Like, what do I do? Do I store my launch knowing that these products have a life, uh, they have a shelf life of two years? Or do I just launch anyway? So I made the bold decision to launch anyway. And two months into it, she reached out to me. You know, she just asked a few questions about the brand. I didn't think anything of it because I was already friends with her for like a year. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm like, maybe she's just curious about what this brand is. Randomly, she sends me an email two months later, three about four months into her launch. And it was a Forbes article saying that she tried the serums and she thinks it's one of the best that wow. she's tried. Wow. Well, that, I mean, that's that's incredible. I mean, it took that long to yes. build and foster that relationship. And you didn't have to ask for this, right? She she tried the product. She did what she did as a Forbes editor and, and, and wrote about it. That's amazing. You know, what, what was the fallout from, you know, finally being in Forbes? You know, did, did you see a sales increase? You know, did yes. things just take that hockey stick rise from there? Forbes definitely blew us up because when it happened first i was really like I, she sent me the link i freaked out obviously i was telling my fiance i'm like i don't think this is real maybe this is a nigerian prince it's like <laughs> what's going on um i got really excited about that and then of course i feel like forbes kind of validated the new brand for even people that i knew right mm. like personal friends that probably just think oh this is doing liz you know it validated it for them it validated it for buyers to the point where, like, two months later, we got a, a buyer, a retail buyer messaging us. You know, they ordered a little over 20,000 pieces of the product. Wow. In our month, I think month seven at that point. And it was because they found us on Forbes. Hmm. So for me, it just looked like, you know, it looked like every event led to every event. I think it was just being consistent, right? And knowing that doing one thing doesn't mean that, you know, it's going to affect that particular thing. It might just work for something else that you haven't anticipated. And, and I guess, you know, throughout all of this, right, through, through the education experience, through, uh, you know, your, your formal career in, in banking, and then all through entrepreneurship, what would you say were some defining moments throughout all of this? I wouldn't say I had one defining moment. I think I've had many. Um, I'll, give, I'll give example of a few. The first one was choosing to not go to pharmacy school. Um, and that was what everyone I knew wanted for me. My parents wanted that for me. My friends wanted that for me. In fact, I can say like most of my friends are medical doctors because we were all like, we're going to go to pharmacy school. We're all going to med school. So that was a defining moment for me because I chose self. I chose what I believed in and I, I knew that I was going to give it my all. So I opted out of pharmacy school and I chose to go do medical aesthetics to allow me to understand how skincare works, the application, the consumer. And then I went to do my MBA. So that was a defining moment for me, something that I will never take back, something that definitely altered the course of my life. And another defining moment for me was choosing to launch Ceramize Skin in a pandemic, mm. right? I freaked out. I was like, okay, I have all these products. How am I going to survive this? Like I've spent on new warehouse. I've spent on 
making the products. I've spent on testing the products, claims testing and all that stuff. And the pandemic happened. I'm so glad that I did it because, you know, we're here now, right? Yeah. And, and kudos to you for, for the work that you've put into this. Um, definitely, definitely impressive. And throughout all of this, of course, as you know, everyone goes through challenges, like major challenges. I mean, we, you talked about, uh, you know, the car accident um, uh, just towards the end of your MBA program. Within your business as well, you know, aside from all of those issues we've already talked about in terms of financing, but like what other challenges did you experience that, that you were like, oh, is this worth it? You know, because I think every entrepreneur gets to that point at, some, at, at, a, at a certain point in their, in their journey. Have you reached that? And, and if you had, what got you over that hump? I think um, most people go through that. I have definitely with both brands. I feel like it's really, you know, like I said earlier, you have to be the one to push from within, right? We definitely had issues like funding, right? Trying to maximize our budget. Cosmetics is really expensive to make, even if it's not makeup, if it's color cosmetics, if it's skincare, it's really expensive. Like in terms of even your insurance, right? To make sure that mm. if anything happened to someone using your product, they're covered. It's twice the price. If someone else paid a thousand dollar for insurance for beauty business, you'd be paying four thousand. Wow. And I think also quieting the noise as well, right? Knowing that what you're doing is enough. Most times I just did things and I had no validation. I had no one to affirm and say, you're in the right place. You just have to take a chance, right? Every day this is me. Even now that the business is booming, this is still me. I'm still contemplating if I should launch more products in the line this year or wait till next year. What's going to make the difference is just engaging the customers. So I definitely think like there's hardship all the time. There's hardship when it comes to funding. There's hardship knowing that you're the underdog playing in a business with big dogs. Like you're in the space with Estee Lauder. You're in the space with Fenty Beauty. You're in the space with Rare Beauty. You're in the space with a lot of brands that have the budget. Like even if they didn't have any ideas, they have the budget, right? So you're competing with those guys. You're the one that has to affirm yourself. So like Nigerians will say, problem no, they finish. <laughs> the problems will never end, but you just have to keep keep at it. Right, right. And and you mentioned one thing, you know, like you didn't have people to say, oh, this is right, keep going. Or, you know, you, you, you were doing a lot of that validation yourself. Um, and that speaks to, you know, a, a concept around mentorship, right? A lot of entrepreneurs have people that they look up to, even if there's not a formal mentor-mentee relationship um, who would you say are, are a couple of folks that have been instrumental in getting you to where you are right now, either in a, in a mentor capacity or in that sort of frame of, you know, you look up to them? I have a strange um, mindset when it comes to mentorship. Um, I feel like it's more mutual. Like I think of more mutual relationships. I think of what I can bring someone and what it can bring me. Um, not necessarily look up to or not look up to. Because, again, no mentor wants to mentor you if you don't have anything to offer. Mm. You don't want to be kind of like a burden to them, messaging them all the time. Um, but I have been inspired, and I'm very committed to active learning. I think my mom is a strong force in my life. Like, she's the woman that has shown me that, you know, you can always break something down and rebuild. Mm. You know, my mom went to go and learn fabrics in Aba before launching stores in Lagos at wholesale prices. So she's always keen on trying new things. And I think that has been a strong force for me. I also, I read a lot of books. I, you know, bounce ideas off my friends, you included, you know. 
So, and also my fiance too, he helps me. He helps me just streamline my thoughts. So I wouldn't say like I have a, a fixed mentor, but I am committed to active learning, continuous learning. I, I like that concept of, you know, trading value, right? Bringing something to the table and, and while you're receiving as well. And, and that's something I think a lot of us should, should probably practice a lot more. And I, and I think it goes to build more authentic relationships, which is effectively what you did with the lady uh, at Forbes that yes. resulted in, you know, something that was, um, you know, exponentially great for, for your brand. So just thinking about some reflections, you know, um, you know, you've, you've built this business, you've been in this industry, right? You um, are effectively a leader in this space, right? You're the CEO of your life. You're the CEO of your own brand. Um, what would you say are some leadership philosophies that you think you've developed along the way throughout your career and, and your entrepreneurship journey? I definitely feel like leadership should be transformational, which means you're actively, you know, seeking change. You're actively seeking to move forward and you're leveraging everything and everyone around you to get there without sacrificing their mental health. <laughs> Very important. And it still comes back to that thing of sharing value. If people see the reason why they need to buy into your dreams and you're buying into theirs, they give you the active best. They give you the best of themselves. You know, they recommend things that you haven't even thought of, you know, to do for yourself to move you forward because they know that your growth is their growth, right? So that's how I see leadership. I think of leadership as followership. So it's a give and take always. That's how, that's my view on leadership. Excellent. And, and of course, you know, being a black woman uh, and a black uh, business owner, um, are there any things that you feel that hold back black leaders, not just in your space, but in any space that, that, they, that they occupy? Definitely. Many things hold us back. Um, but I think it's important for us to just know that we're enough, right? That's the thing that holds, holds us back the most, self, right? We feel like we, we're so fixed on how other people perceive us. We're so fixed on if they think I'm good enough for this role, if they don't think I'm diversity higher, if they don't think that I'm ready for this role, like we're constantly thinking of how to make other people comfortable with our blackness mm. instead of just shining in the role. So I personally, I'm not politically correct by any means. <laughs> so I just, I feel like that's what holds us back as black leaders. Even with our choices to bring others in, we're constantly thinking, if I give this other black person a chance to come into my company, will they be a good representative of me? Would they be a good representation of me? Would they be a good fit for me? So it always comes back to how am I perceived? Do I look serious enough? Do I talk white enough? Do I have the best pitch enough? You know, do I keep the same hairstyle? Do I wear my work wig? We just need to free ourselves and focus on building um, from within. Look at other communities, right? Asians, you know, they are doing it. We need to do more and stop waiting for the approval. Very, very good advice. I, I, I really resonate with that. And I think that's something that, that folks that are listening could, will probably resonate with as well. So when we, when we think about the future, right, uh, you know, you're still young, still a young entrepreneur. What's next for you uh, in this space? Growth. I'm very flexible. I'm looking forward to continuing to build my parent brand. So I have a parent brand, HBL, and we do a lot of custom formulations for other brands and my hope is that it truly becomes a house of brands, kind of like SD, mm. but for fresher brands, right? So I'm working on that right now. That's where I hope my future is going. I hope that that becomes my legacy in the beauty space. And I'm also keen on 
you know, just being true to self, being okay with who I am, being okay with my personal life, being okay with everything that concerns me and my brand. And I'm also um, very keen on impacting others. So I want to help other people grow their businesses. I want it to be easy for them, easier than it was for me at least. Fantastic. And and, and I think that's a very great place for us to, to, to wrap up. I think it's been a great conversation. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we got to go through our rapid fire session. Um, I'm going to ask you five random questions and you're going to give me whatever answer comes to your mind uh, uh, as quickly as possible. All right. So the first one, what book are you currently reading? I'm reading a couple of, of books. Right now I'm reading Crucial Conversations. Um, also, I'm reading How Women Rise by Michelle Gold. Cool. cool. Those are two books I'm reading right now. Um, and who would you say is your favorite Disney character? Disney? <laughs> I'm not even keen on Disney, to be honest. <laughs> none. Absolutely none. <laughs> yeah. Disney. All right. And who would you say is your biggest cheerleader or supporter? I have many cheerleaders, but I'll definitely say my mom. Excellent. And um, in terms of productivity, what would you say is your biggest tool or hack? I think I just break the mold when I get anxious about stuff. I try to remove myself from situations like I would go on like a random trip, mm. change of environment, change of thoughts, change of mindset. And if I can't go on a trip like right now in COVID, I'll just take a walk. Awesome. I'll take long walks. And last question, where is your favorite place to escape to? <laughs> nice very nice well liz thank you very much for joining us i mean this has been a phenomenal conversation uh your your entrepreneurial journey your early start in life i think is going to be inspirational to to folks that listen to this and being a black female leader in uh, uh a very traditionally uh competitive space like the beauty industry i think is phenomenal i think as, as we always say on the show you are definitely made to lead and we'll continue to watch and support you throughout so thanks for joining us thank you thank you so much for listening to this episode of made to lead if you enjoyed what you heard please subscribe on itunes google podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please share with others also take a moment to leave a review as well this helps us improve and also get discovered by others you can also support by following us on twitter and instagram at made to lead show and by visiting our website, madetolead.co. If you would like to be featured or know an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, madetolead.co slash getfeatured and send us a note. As you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers because you were made to lead. <laughs>